Hello and welcome to Take Note. This is a podcast about keeping a notebook and paying attention. I am Adam. I am here with my buddy of 20 years or so. Ted, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing just fine. School year started, summer's over. Uh, stress dreams have kicked back in. It's all mm-hmm. very real. How are you? I'm having stress. I'm good. I'm having stress dreams about how many times I might say buddy in this episode. I'm up to three now. I think I might count. Um, three. I just, yeah. I just, I, I, you know, I dropped a few buddies earlier than I intended to, at least one. Well, we're, one was an awkward echo of a buddy. Alternate pronouns are, are in vogue. So uh, let's add one to the list. Uh, so every episode we uh, ask each other a question. That is, what do you got? Means what have you got in your notebook? What have you observed of late and put down on paper with some sort of writing device or, may, or voice capture or, or uh, maybe a stylus? I don't know. You tell me. But uh, what do you got, Adam? All right, Ted. Uh, do you know the word? Do you know what perches? Like to perch upon uh, a buddy? For no, 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 no. Perch. Like uh, I went fishing with my buddy and we caught some perch? No, no, it's spelled P-U-R-C-H, perch. I'm not familiar, not familiar. All right, here, let me give you some examples. Uh, Free six donuts with perch of 12 donuts. (laughs) Free 12-inch cheese with perch of any 18-inch pizza. (laughs) Free pot stickers with perch of two entrees. Uh, Free pork sandwich with perch of reg price full slab dinner. Free small one-topping pizza with perch of large slash extra large pizza. And then my favorite, right? If you don't have room for perch in your uh, coupon card, Village Pizza, 10% off total food per. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoyed it as much as I did. You you (laughs) had me at full slab dinner. Uh, Perch or no perch, sign me up for that thing. Whatever that might mean. Hey, we're all we're all saving space these days saving paper it's all about real estate saving bits and bytes uh okay driving was the header i scribbled down uh for this one um in my uh cloud 48 what's this thing called cloud 13 i'll never remember what it's called group 11 Topper. group 11 that's oh, what it's yep. called. so i will say that i after our uh discussion and uh and pep talk I have abandoned trying to write in any orderly fashion inside this dot grid notebook and my life is all the better for it. So thank you for that. Um, Okay, driving. I looked in my rear view mirror and saw a slightly older lady driving a black minivan. In the passenger seat, a small girl's forehead peeked over the dashboard. Uh, I was appalled that such a small girl should be so dangerously positioned uh, and I fumed about it in my head and wondered how the driver could uh, live with herself and how perhaps she was simply uninformed about child safety. I did nothing, of course, and we all went on our way and hopefully nothing bad will ever happen to that little girl or any other little girl the whole world over. A few minutes later, waiting for the light at a new intersection, I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the woman in the minivan. But now in the passenger seat, there was a large-headed boy Uh, of middle school age in a white polo shirt uh, of the sort that's common in a public school uniform. His seating was appropriate, the size that he was. Yet I retained my sense of injustice and my indignation, uh, even while this was an entirely different woman driving an altogether distinct black minivan. 
the first sighting having absolutely nothing to do with the second, but for my passive involvement in both and the weak thread of coincidence trailing between the two. You were upset at the first, at the second lady because you were upset at the first lady. That's, that's right. I love uh, it. I've been reading Proust and uh, the guy will, there's a, it's the kind of thing that you read uh, that you start thinking like that when you read it, I feel like, where it like you start thinking in very long sentences and, uh, and really trying to, or, or perhaps unintentionally seeing the world, the normal world around us as a strange place with uh, threads connecting everything and let, letting your mind, it's, it's I, I would recommend it. This is the first time I've ever read Proust. Obviously he's mentioned with great regularity and he gets a lot of, he gets a lot of run for the, the Madeleine uh, or the Petite Madeleine memory thing, but, but really it's more of this, he's just unspooling these reels of uninterrupted uh, kind of like I'm doing right now how I I won't let you get a word in edgewise but I'm just I'm never I'm never ending my sentence just adding another comma and keeping it going Javier Marias Spanish novelist who I really like does the same thing and but I and I, I think who, who wrote the turn of the screw Henry James, probably James. Yeah, I think is known for that. Uh, but Javier Marias, I really liked his books. I loved those long sentences, but it, it never influenced me in any way to try to write a sentence like that because it all, ju it just seemed unattainable. You know, like I, I'm impressed that their minds think that way and it'd be great to, to be able to do that. But yeah, no. I, yeah, it's. I, I wouldn't say uh, uh, writing like that. That's a that's a, a bridge too far. But you, he, he, there's a a you know prismatic element where the book, as far as I can tell, is one diversion stacked upon another into this uh, this this Russian doll of diversions. It, for, you're like, oh, he diverted from the topic, but wait, the thing he diverted from was a diversion from another thing. And there's no actual, you keep opening the Russian doll and getting to a new doll. There's no actual uh, center to it, which is amazing. Cause I can't, you get, what's the book about? I, no idea. Right, <laughs> it's just right. a series of, of uh, meandering distractions about which there's no actual plot. Which, which book are you reading? This is Swan's Way. This is um, the first, uh, the first I think of three, is it, or maybe four, of the remembrance of things past. Uh, this is the the mid two thousands translation by Lydia Davis, which uh, I may oh, cool. have mentioned this previously. One of the most pretentious reviews I've ever read was a dissection of why her uh, translation was was uh, slightly inferior to the one that was done in 1935. And the, the guy just uh, just was quoting long passages, placing them next to each other. I didn't read the whole thing. but It was not enough to uh, dissuade me from reading her newest version. But it's really, that's uh, really great. I like her she, book she, of essays, okay. the Lydia Davis essays. I haven't read many of them, but I've got it. It's a handsome little book. And I've really liked the essays I've read in it. Read in it. She's known, I think, too, for short stories, and she's written a novel, and uh, uh, a great writer. I mean, translating 
like Proust, that's pretty, uh, pretty fantastic undertaking. All right, what do you got, Adam? All right, I've written down here, Serafina, 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 and that is an overheard young dad who has not yet given up on his daughter's first full name, a you know, one-year-old daughter, hasn't yet taken the bridge to just Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. Fifi, so, Fifi's. Yep. Serafina, Serafina, yep. I, uh, when we got a dog, uh, I was in high school, and uh, we named the little puppy Athena. Uh, I don't know. You name a dog. You try and name a dog. You try and agree on a name, and then uh, let the you know dog runs out. Come here, Athena. Athena. Next day. All right. New name. This name ain't working. So <laughs> if you're gonna have a child or a dog yell it first mm -hmm. see what it feels like in the back of the throat down in the chest in the diaphragm does it roll uh i had a friend in high school named landon played baseball with no, him that's no good hey let's go landon land come on land on you just never knew what to do it's not a good yelling name did you change athena's name yeah chewy C-H-C-H-U-Y, Chewy, actually. Yeah. You know, we did a couple of years after we had a son named Wiley. We got a dog and named him Charlie. And they're too similar, first off. But also, Charlie will, for a while, would reply would respond to either one. I think Wiley maybe would have, too, for a bit. <laughs> that was a mistake. Um, I want to put in a quick plug for a book I read. Uh, by a friend of mine, Pete Beatty, called Cuyahoga. Uh, I knew it was a book about Cleveland. I didn't know it was this kind of book about Cleveland. It's this, uh, it's like uh, Paul Bunyan tales um, filtered through the, uh, filtered through some strange auteur director's mind and spat out again and, and, and written by, I don't know, somebody in a log cabin who's, who's <laughs> taken some ayahuasca or something. It's this uh, lyrical, amazing di uh, dialectical folk tale uh, about semi-mythical figures in the formation of Cleveland and the Cuyahoga River. It's really fantastic. Um, and it's worth it's worth a read. It's like just so so different than anything I've ever read before. Uh, so big props to Pete uh, and congratulations. Uh, it was it was so good, so good. So it sounds good. I'm eager to read it. It's been on my list. Good, you'll enjoy. It. And it's not a it's not a huge book. It's really great. Was it? Would you call it like a like a regular like? book object size thing or is it more of like a hyper object of a book it's uh i mean the, the book is an object i would say the paper it's written on is a hyper object the ink it's printed with is is a hyper object in that i can see the ink from that book but when i try to imagine all the ink printed in all the books uh on earth right now and in all of recorded human history I have a little problem, a little trouble with that. It's more of the hyper object. Right. And for for our listeners who might think we've both lost our mind at the same time, or 
we're just really into hyperobjects. Maybe uh, maybe we should start talking hyperobjects. So uh, Timothy Morton is a faculty member at Rice University where I work that has no bearing on the conversation. Uh, but uh, the New Yorker wrote uh, a profile about them and uh, they are a philosopher um, who engages with, uh, with these, this kind of fascinating uh, view of the world. I mean, I think the crux for me, and so I would recommend, you know, you hit pause, go find this New Yorker article, June 8th, 2021. You can find a, a Guardian profile here, a Houston Chronicle article there. They, they espouse this idea that ecology um, goes beyond just what we think of as nature, you know, nature being confined to um, like a, a state park or, or a or a national park where it's trees and it's a, a babbling brook and more that that ecology is the the whole world that we live in of which we were we are very much a part um, and you know extending on that idea uh, is is this idea of uh, the hyper object and a hyper object they is very loosely defined in this article but. Uh, and there's, I think, three examples of a hyperobject that are given global warming and styrofoam. And then I, I'm not sure if this one's in the article as an example or not, but it is in this other description that I found radioactive plutonium. Um, and with styrofoam, they're maybe kind of, there's a, they're maybe kind of clear about how that is a hyperobject in a way that, uh, that you can make some sense of it. But it's something, it's an object that's, so widely distributed that it's everywhere in the world sort of and that uh i don't know it's hard to explain yeah. oil was a good one for me because oil is something we think we understand it's this goobly goop that's underneath the earth but it's underneath the earth it's uh it's it's in our plastic it's in you know every you look around you and oil is everywhere and to try and to try and hold the idea of that in your mind is beyond human capacity. And, and I think at the, at the heart of Morton's philosophy, or maybe not the heart, but at least what's discussed here is the idea that we have to come to terms with that. Uh, that, that as a human being, especially as a human being who I think has a broader awareness of the world than perhaps our ancestors, our deep ancestors, we just have to accept the strange reality of knowing about these these hyper objects and the the the, the fundamental unknowability um, that they represent. Which because uh, yes, like right, we all we're all trying to figure out how to make sense of that. So here is where I start to have some just difficulty with it and trying to make sense of it. So I guess I would ask you, how is how confident are you that water is or is not a hyper object? Okay. I was reading this book today called Tales from the Big Bend. It's from the mid seventies. It's, it's folk tales from this Western part of Texas, mostly desert kind of frontier. All these, you know, tales of, 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 uh, you know, strange folks out on the 
out in the desert interacting with Native Americans. You know, I'm sure 99% of those are are fictitious, but presented in yeah, this. You were talking of, about it earlier. This is the Proust, right? <laughs> and <laughs> I can't even do a pretend French version of Tales from the Big Bend. Um, but it, the whole chapter is dedicated to water witchers. Like, you know, the people who put a stick in their hand and wander around, you know, supposedly uh, feeling the vibrations of the earth in order to locate an underground well. And in so doing, spend all this time describing the behavior of underground rivers, which are, you know, the, the author at one point was like, geologists disagree that underground rivers exist, but the water witchers, mind you, oh, they'll tell you which way it flows and how it goes up and down and, you know, they'll predict how many feet down it is. And, you know, he interviews these, this one who said, well, you know, I've had, it. there was out on the Peterson farm. I yeah, found one was, I said it was 347 feet down, turned out to be 348 feet down. So I thought that was pretty good. But it was water. It was like this idea of, it was almost, it's funny you would ask me that because these water witchers are almost these like, these uh these tarot card readers of the of the water as hyper object realm and my brain was trying to think oh this is so weird how they are they're making this claim to having some deeper understanding of like aquifers like what is more mind-boggling than the idea that there's just water underneath us everywhere in these pockets of mud and caves and sand and i mean i so my answer is clearly yes because even okay. just reading the tales from the big bend i was like my brain was bending trying to comprehend water so okay so i, I guess when i read this article i had a really hard time comprehending what makes something uh, a hyper object and what makes something not a hyper object right so yeah there's there's oil there's styrofoam there's, I don't know if he talks about global, uh, um, global warming in, yeah. in this well, article. Maybe not. not here, but, but certainly yeah. so large. those are hyper objects. And I, but I really had no idea. Does that mean the, is water a hyper object too? And I think you make a good case that it is. I just had a really hard time kind of understanding really what makes something a hyper object and what makes something not a hyper object, because I think of the article, it was so focused on these few examples well you know morton has written like 11 books or something and they are they're almost different from the way that, that articles try to describe it articles try to say well their theory is that it's like styrofoam but morton will write like a hundred pages of poetical prose that you know pull in all if different influences and and they're not afraid to just like push language to its boundaries and you you do have this kind of confused feeling as you're reading their work so it's it's almost like the articles are trying to be clear in describing something that is fundamentally indescribable and i i think that's morton's like overall project yeah um, okay which uh, you know when, when Morton speaks with the writer, that becomes clear to me. 
they're talking about cats, how cats are a portal between human beings. That's one of my favorite lines. Uh, cats, Morton writes, I guess he wrote it somewhere else, quote, weirdly symbolize the ambiguous border between agricultural logistics and it's impossible to demarcate outside. I mean, we don't let dogs just wander about. It's as if we want to use cats to prove to ourselves that there is a nature, unquote. And Morton has a cat and the interviewer <laughs> goes to the vet with their cat while Morton <laughs> is talking about cats. I mean, I think, I think the article is trying to do something that even Morton doesn't predispose as even possible. Okay, so that, that makes it. I, I have here a list quotes from the article that I think make your case that the the author of the article is not going to be able to do the job of the philosopher and explain the thing. And uh, the heading I gave these four quotes is not looking great for your magazine profile. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first quote from the article, um, Morton seemed to enjoy saying mysterious sentences without explaining them. <laughs> That's their whole career, I would argue. The, the next one speaks to this cat situation. <laughs> the next day, I assumed we would begin our quest to find signs of hyper objects in and around the city of Houston. But instead, they end up going to the vet. Um, <laughs> quote, Martin describes themselves as an ecologist, but is one only in a special extended sense. Uh-oh. And then here's, here's my favorite. And this was the one, really, where in the article, I thought, what the hell is going on here? Um, but this was printed in The New Yorker. Um, quote, the point of object-oriented ontology is that there is a vast cosmos out there in which weird and interesting shit is happening to all sorts of objects all the time. So I don't know, to me, that was, I think, the point where the author gave up yep. on fighting the word for what is happening to these objects. Uh, the, the, when I started to worry myself <laughs> was uh, when the author encountered a, a, a yeah. an <laughs> energy industry engineer and thought, Here's someone that could make my article more interesting <laughs> and essentially smooshed that person together with Morton and then had to essentially describe what clearly was not a particularly interesting <laughs> conversation. I mean, it was, sounded okay, but the writer was so it was like, and then that person left. We dropped them off at the bed and breakfast and right. went along on our way. And I was like, Okay, well, they were kind of upfront about how they sort of manufactured that interaction, but then it just went nowhere. Yeah. Okay. Great. So we're kind of on the same page. Oh this. yeah. You yeah. know, one of I really enjoyed a profile of philosopher Nick Bostrom in the New Yorker a few years ago. Uh, his book is Super Intelligence, and it's about the threats of artificial intelligence. And um, and and I share this to make fun of myself since I have some concerns about this article and understanding uh, Timothy Morton's. But the, the lasting impact of that Nick Bostrom profile, yes, I read the book Super Intelligence. I did it 
by accidentally pressing the purchase button on my <laughs> iPad. But the lasting impact was that Nick Bostrom really likes lamps and his office is filled with lamps. And so I always think to myself, maybe I should buy another lamp because Nick Bostrom is a brilliant philosopher and he buys a lot of lamps. So, you know, that's that's what I'm bringing to the New Yorker philosopher profiles, or that's what I'm taking from them, I guess. Well, you know, I, I, one, of, one thing I liked about this article, and it's sort of self-serving, is that it is about Houston in a way too. City I was born, city where I live, city that I, I have a... In a, a complicated relationship with that grows more complicated with every natural disaster. I mean, my house flooded in Hurricane Harvey, uh, which was in unprecedented rainfall, uh, was here for this deep freeze in February where at, a, at you know, the one time it got down to 25 degrees, the entire power grid shut down for, uh, you know, 72 hours across the state. Um, so, so I think there's a way in which, obviously, shortcomings of the the article notwithstanding, but there's a way in which Morton, they work in this city, dealing with issues of indescribable complexity and the the current human condition, in a place where I have experienced firsthand the the collision of nature and industry, the uh, the the you know, the idea of energy and creating energy and, you know, coming up against climate change and the, the, the conflicts therein, like, um, you know, the, the other... The visuals of Houston that they describe in the article are really, really interesting. And I, that was actually one of my favorite parts of it too, the two massive, I don't even know if they're power plants, but the two yeah. massive chemical or energy plants with a little bit of greenway between the two of them yeah let's see the, the same uh so they go to the houston ship channel which oddly i feel like they didn't name but it's it's one of the mo one of the major ports in the world and it's a huge reason that houston is a an economic uh powerhouse um but uh the writer describes giant tankers drifted by in an endless procession Massive tubes shot flames into the sky, the, the silos you mentioned. A few guys sat in the grass with fishing poles just behind them. Another plant loomed. A screaming sound seemed to be part of its production process. That was, that was probably my favorite line of the uh, of the entire piece. But they, you know, there's they're they're giving the writer this tour of just right at the right at the white hot edge of at least in America, let's say, of, uh, of this big problem <laughs> that we're stuck in. Yet I live in Houston, millions of people live in Houston. Many of us have very pleasant lives here on lovely tree-lined streets and Rice University where they work and I work uh, has beautiful oak trees and it is idyllic in every sense. Um, so I, I, I love that about this article. I think that's why I wanted to talk about it too is, is it's not just about Morton for me, it's about um, Houston. The bigger, uh, I, I appreciate this New Yorker article for pushing me into exploring their bigger universe of, of talks and lectures and 
podcast episodes, just a Twitter feed, just, um, I don't know, really interesting kind of universe of thought that goes outside the norm, really. You know, to me, it's in part to a story of someone who um, is not letting kind of what's an easy, an easy dunk uh, stop them from pushing up against some really compelling ideas. And that for me, ideas that have this little ring of truth, you know, like the water witcher, like I wasn't thinking about Timothy Morton as I read that, but I was thinking, this is so strange. And these, these are, these people are, are, they have geologic, they have constraints. They need water and they are going to these charlatans with the promise that that charlatan, that person has magical command of this hyper object. And I wasn't thinking that, but I was feeling it. So I, I think there's, for me, the sense that Morton's onto, dis, onto, the, onto describing something that we're feeling without knowing what that feeling is. Less than, I don't think that they're prescribing solutions or a philosophy to answer all questions, but rather, um, starting with describing what we're feeling. Uh, a few closing thoughts, uh, just to just to spin things back around towards us. Uh, I had thought that take note is a local manifestation of the podcast hyper object. I know you're having trouble conceptualizing podcasts. Well, here. Here's here's your here's what you can really hold on to, and I, a couple other hyper objects I thought of, uh, the number of pens owned by Brad Dowdy, uh -huh. very, diff very difficult to wrap one's mind around, and then every big crystal that exists in the uh, in the known <laughs> universe, it's more than one mind can hold at a time. That's right. A good hyper object might be my resistance to New Yorker articles, despite <laughs> my professed love. For the magazine, <laughs> I think they've I think they've positioned themselves to be uh, resisted at every turn with their aura of uh, impermeability. Um, you know, I'm just reminded right now of one other uh, sentence that didn't make it onto the list of not looking great for your magazine profile because I couldn't. This one I think could go either way. Um, the lizard's name was Nicodemus, Morton said, and who, he was a gift from Bjork's close friend's son, which I would argue is like the lowest type of uh, celebrity name dropping because it wasn't a gift from Bjork's son. It was a gift from Bjork's friend's son. They, As I was rereading uh, this evening, I, I had to stop and in a Proust-like fashion, reread the sentence to figure out which which Russian doll was nested within which, uh, just to be sure I knew what was going on there. Nicodemus. Let's do this again next week, Adam. What do you say? Lizard's not a hyper object, I'm going to say. Uh, check us out on uh, the internet at takenote.space. There's a contact page if you want to <clears throat> let us know. Uh, uh, your your local neighborhood hyper object and what it might mean to you. Uh, we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash take note pod. 
and in the meantime, just keep it hyper. Yep, people could tweet us lizard names. I would like that. If you got a good name for a lizard, whether it came from Bjork's friend's son or not. 